Welcome to season one of the Comfortably Hungry podcast, where yesterday's dinner is tomorrow's history. If you're a peckish person who is curious about the history of food and drink, then you're in the right place. I'm Sam Bilton, a food historian, writer and presenter, and each season I will be joined by some hungry guests to discuss a variety of topics centred around a specific theme. It can't have escaped your notice that Britain, and indeed much of the world, is in a pretty rubbish place financially speaking. Just about everyone is feeling the pinch from the cost of living crisis at the moment. So that is why I have chosen austerity as the theme for this season. Now I'm not here to provide money or energy saving tips, as there are plenty of other podcasts and websites doing that very well already. What I plan to do with my guests this season is look at how people have coped or reacted in times of austerity in the past. We'll be exploring everything from food riots, heroic ingredients and the origins of some popular energy-saving devices. Although we are living in straitened times, there is no reason why the tradition of the comfortably hungry potluck supper can't continue, especially as the dishes provided are virtual after all. They may well be on the frugal side, but they will undoubtedly be delicious. So to whet everyone's appetites, I've invited my guests to bring along a virtual dish inspired by their topic. Today, I will be discussing the not-so-humble potato and how, at various points in British history, it has been seen as the saviour of food poverty. Joining me for this episode is Professor Rebecca Earle, who teaches food history at the University of Warwick. Rebecca is interested in how ordinary everyday activities such as eating or dressing shape how we think about the world and how others view us. She has authored five books including The Body of the Conquistador, Food, Race and the Colonial Experience in Spanish America 1492-1700 and two on today's topic. Welcome to the podcast Rebecca. You must really love potatoes to have written two books on the subject. What is it about these tubers that fascinates you? I think the thing that's fascinating about potatoes is the way in which they are, for us, the absolute epitome of ordinariness. They're humble. Every time anybody talks to me about potatoes, they tend to work in the word humble. They say the humble potato. But the humble potato turns out to have an incredibly interesting global history that allows us to tell stories about modernity, about the role of women in changing the way the world eats, about the role of peasant farmers in China in transforming the diets of people in China, which is now the world's biggest producer of potatoes, even though they come from halfway across the world originally. So it's that combination of the potatoes' total familiarity in our kitchens and its unfamiliarity in terms of its complex and interesting history. We've just heard the potato being described as humble, but as we will explore today, it's anything but. The potato is one of the most versatile vegetables we eat in the Western world. To quote Rebecca from her book Feeding the People, The Politics of the Potato, Today, the potato is a remarkably successful global food. It ranks just behind wheat, maize and rice in terms of the volume harvested each year, and is the world's fifth most valuable food crop. More potatoes are eaten per capita in Malawi than Peru itself. Overall, Europeans are now the world's most assiduous eaters of potatoes, 
consuming on average some 82 kilos per person each year. But it hasn't always been plain sailing for this South American immigrant. It has been plagued by myths surrounding its edibility, such as links between its consumption and leprosy, leading some writers to assume that potatoes weren't widely eaten in Europe by the working classes prior to the 19th century, when in fact they were. Over the centuries it has been hailed as both a health food and as a nutritional prior, accused of making the working population lazy. At times the potato has been a source of social unrest, yet during both world wars it was relied upon to feed allied and enemy nations. Although in Britain they don't count as one of your five a day, Potatoes are a source of potassium, vitamin C, B1 and B6, and their skins contain fibre. However, finally, the potato's importance to global food security has been officially recognised by the United Nations, which declared 2008 the International Year of the Potato. You can find out more about this tuber's history in Rebecca's books, Feeding the People and Potato, both of which provide a fascinating account of the potato's somewhat bumpy journey to our table. So why has it triumphed in spite of criticism and the tribulations it's faced over the centuries? Because there has been detractors for potatoes on and off. I mean, it's, it certainly yo-yos, doesn't it, in popularity when you look at its history. In the case of potatoes, I think there's a lot to be said for the material horticultural culinary qualities of potatoes. They aren't just, the potato isn't just a cultural construct. It's a full foodstuff that people grew and ate. And potatoes have a lot of really striking things going for them that I think has made them popular all around the world. They're a really good crop. They grow in marginal land where you can't necessarily raise grain like oats or rice or rye so well. So they're good for Poor people who don't have access to a super great agricultural land, they can be grown on hilly and mountainous terrain, where again it would be complicated to grow grains for your sustenance. They're highly calorific in terms of the amount of calories you can get out of a plot of land. If you want to make enough food to feed yourself and your family out of a plot of land, you'd be hard pressed to plant it with anything more nourishing than potatoes. They don't use very much water per hectare of land. They're full of vitamins. They have all sorts of great qualities, which I think recommended them to ordinary people all around the world. So at what point did the British in particular uh, first realise how beneficial potatoes could be? So, yeah, there there are sort of two sides to that, depending on which bits of British population you think about. So in terms of those ordinary people who might not have had some great land or might have just had a little kitchen garden outside a cottage or who perhaps were in Ireland and were being pushed onto smaller and smaller plots of land by um, colonialism after the English colonised Ireland, for those people, I think the virtues of potatoes were recognised really very early in the all the evidence that I've seen suggests that the first people in Europe, for example, who were growing potatoes for food were ordinary people, were poor farmers and were peasants, whether it was in Germany or in Ireland. That's a different matter, though, from when it was that states in Western Europe started to be interested in potatoes. 
that was as a different chronology. And there the chronology really has to do not with how great the potato was per se, but with changing ideas about how you built up a strong state. So over the 18th century, it became increasingly the view in Western Europe that the way that you became powerful as an economic force, as a military force, as a manufacturing force, was to have a large, hearty, hard-working, well-nourished population of laborers, whether those laborers were going to be sailors or people working in manufacturing or agricultural laborers who were going to be growing the food that everyone would need. This you know, is very different from the 20th century people panicking about overpopulation, right? And, you know, from the 20th century perspective, we're used to worrying about having too many people for the amount of food that there's available. Those sorts of concerns were not really typical of the 18th century, where the goal was to get a big population to make you stronger than your European rival. But there was a realization that to do that, you needed some really good food. You needed people to eat properly. So in some ways, you could say that the state's interest in our diet, the idea that the state should be have any interest at all in what we were eating, was born in the 18th century because of this desire to build up a strong, hearty population. So how influenced were the likes of William uh, Buchan um, in persuading people to eat potatoes? What did he advocate in particular? So William Buchan was a fashionable physician who lived in Britain in the late 18th century. And he wrote a number of widely read and republished handbooks on one called domestic medicine on you know sort of how to look after yourself it's full of advice like students should change their socks more often and I mean it's got all sorts of um, ways of treating earache and all kinds of things and one of the things that he strongly recommended was that ordinary people in Britain should eat a lot a heck of a lot more potatoes which he felt along with dairy products were more or less a perfect food and so he was an example of one of these 18th century potato promoters who was encouraging ordinary working people to eat more potatoes, to drink less beer, to have less white bread, to drink less meat, to eat more vegetables. He was also advocating more whole grains in general. And he had actually, he was, he's really an excellent example of this sort of 18th century dietary advice coming from Members of the, the upper classes telling ordinary people how they ought to be more healthy through changing their diet. So why was it believed that eating potatoes would make you happy? Because clearly William Buckham thought they would improve your happiness. But what was the benefit to the state of having a happy and well-fed population? It would make the state happy because ideally if everybody could get off wheat and could start eating potatoes, I could then use their food potato-given heartiness to carry on growing wheat, that would lead to a wheat surplus, which could be exported to some other less advanced country that hadn't figured out how to move on to a potato economy, but also used to feed the enormous armies that were building up in the second half of the 18th century, when much of Western Europe was at war with itself. So that was, you know, make the state very happy. But this is also the period when people like Adam Smith were articulating their ideas about 
how to organize an economy and about free trade. This was the period when it began to be argued that the best way to organize an economy was not for the state to try to direct trade, not to try to manage prices, not to try to ensure that there were maximum prices for bread, for example, not to do any of that, but rather just to completely get out of the business of trying to intervene in the functioning of the economy and let the market sort it out. That argument was premised on the idea that people knew their own interests better than anybody else, and that the best thing you should do was let people pursue their own interests, and then everybody pursuing their own interests would sort of magically work together to create a well-functioning economic system. So this idea of individual pursuits of happiness, effectively, was at the heart of these new ideas about free trade. So the pursuit of happiness is a you know, God-given right. And you should be looking after your own happiness. And if you do that, if you look after your own well-being, economic and otherwise, and everybody else does the same, so the theory went, it would just magically work so that everybody's interest would be looked after, the economy would work perfectly, etc. Right? That's the basic idea. So what does this have to do with potatoes? So if you're going to be advocating that people ought to be eating more of anything, you could say, well, you should just do it. It'll be for the public good. You'll hate it, but, you know, everybody else will benefit. We'll have a stronger economy. So just eat those potatoes. You could do that. That is completely not in keeping with this new model of liberalism, effectively, which is beginning to emerge. And where you sell things to people, not by saying, just do it for the public good. You say, you, personally, will benefit enormously. You'll feel healthier. You'll enjoy delicious food. Potatoes are lovely. Your kids will like them. Don't think about the bigger picture. So I think it's quite interesting that a lot of the people in the late 18th century, in Britain, for example, who were, and in France, who were promoting potatoes, tended to insist that they were super delicious, that they were really lovely, that they would make you happy. And I think that's a reflection of the way dietary advice conformed to this emergent view about the personal pursuit of individual happiness. So how um, were people told to eat potatoes? Um, so the um, poorer people, the working population, what were the preparations that were recommended? There were an awful lot of recommendations for soup. So soup containing potatoes, a little bit of meat or bacon or some other meaty protein, turnips, onions, salt, basically a vegetable soup with a little bit of meat. Those became fashionable dishes almost, not for elite people to eat, but for elite people to cook up and then offer to poor people in a soup kitchen, particularly during the 1890s when there was considerable hunger across Western Europe for a whole variety of reasons. So there are lots of little cookbooks that tell you how you can cook up a potato soup for yourself or for the tenants who might live on your land. The other thing that there was a real fascination with was how to make potato bread. Bread was the absolute staple of working people's lives. I mean, there are people sort of work out that working men might eat, I don't know, a pound of bread a day or something like that. It was sort of all very well to say, well, stop eating bread and just eat a whole bunch of potatoes. But people liked bread. It was culturally important. The optimal thing to do would be to make potatoes in bread, right? The problem with a potato is that it doesn't really have enough gluten 
to support a, a rise with yeast. Lots of scientists threw their energies into trying to figure out ways to, as they put it, panify potatoes to turn them into bread. You can find lots of recipes for bread that's not made 100% with potatoes, but where you maybe use a quarter of the flour you replace with the mashed potato. And it just makes the bread really moist and keeps a bit longer. Really nice. Elizabeth David was a fan, actually, of potato bread. There's a, a nice recipe in her bread and yeast cookery book. Yeah, I really agree. They're really tasty breads that we, we can eat now, not because we're trying to build up a hearty population in the British Isles, but because they're just really good. Yeah, they are. Definitely, I agree. So did the poor actually want to eat this sort of food or did they sort of take a, an exception at being told that they should eat potato soup and potato bread? People took exception. People recognized that there was something ideological going on and being told, why well, you just, you know, eat these potatoes? Potatoes became kind of associated with a move to capitalism, really, which was taking place over the 19th century. So there are a number of examples that there, were, there was a wave of riots and uprisings might be a better word. In 1830, known as the Captain Swing Riots, which, in which agricultural laborers were protesting against the changes in the way agriculture was being organized in, in Britain in the early 19th century, which was moved to an ever more capitalist model in which rural workers were being converted into a kind of um, rural proletariat. I mean, a kind of you know, wage labor force to be hired or fired as needed. And often the protests were framed around riot. And the people who were protesting would say, we are not going to be here starving on potatoes and spring water. We want to eat properly. Being reduced to potatoes was a code word for becoming completely impoverished and denuded of your of your rights. So the potato yeah, became this kind of emblem of these changes, these this move to capitalism. At the same time, the same people who were saying, I'm not going to be reduced to potatoes, I'm not going to be starving on potatoes and spring water. Generally speaking, I don't think these people had anything against potatoes per se. They didn't want to be reduced to potatoes. They wanted a bit of meat with their potatoes. They wanted the potatoes not as the core of their diet. They wanted potatoes as something they would have alongside a more ample dietary. So they're nice examples of, you know, some of the same people who are saying, don't reduce us to potatoes, firing the, you know, setting fire to barns, and then saying, oh, that's a nice fire, we just need a couple of potatoes and we can have a nice little spread. You're quite right, they could have done. We did, I discussed uh, food rights with Josh Susson, who wrote a book called mm. Food Worth Fighting For. Um, we were looking at the one in 1816. So I guess this is where we're starting to see the tide turn against potatoes and in the early 19th century, they're seeing potatoes not in quite such a favourable light. William Cobbett springs to mind. He had distinct views, didn't he, on potatoes and their impact on the working population. That's right. So William Cobbett was a really interesting person. He was a journalist and political activist and later in his life, he was, I think, MP for Oldham, but who became a real champion of working people in the 1820s and 1830s, in, in England in particular, he identified the changes that he saw taking place in the way agriculture was being organized. And he thought they were terrible, and he campaigned for better conditions for agricultural laborers. He was one of the people who absolutely saw the potato as a kind of a shorthand for the capitalization of, of agriculture, for its conversion into a capitalist enterprise. So for him, the potatoes summed up that 
absolutely everything that was bad about what was happening in Britain, which he saw as turning against the well-being of, of poor people. So he was super opposed to potatoes. He thought um, trying to get working people to eat potatoes was just sort of a trick to um, turn them, to immiserate them, to get them off the healthy diet of beer and bread, as he saw, which is what, you know, in old times, laborers have been eating and to get them onto tea and potatoes, he thought was just summed up everything that was terrible about what was happening in Britain at that time. But what's sort of interesting was that Cobbett had this particular, you know, sort of left-wing view, I guess we could say, of, of the potato as an, as an enabler of capitalism, which he hated for that reason. Other people, you know, economic liberals, people who Cobbett didn't like, they disliked potatoes for more or less the opposite reasons. I mean, everybody was turning against the potato in this period because they saw it as somehow connected to this massive transformation in economic life. And they blamed it for different things. They all agreed it had something to do with the potato. So people who were in favor of the free market and who advocated this transformation towards a more capitalist model of the economy, when they were thinking about how things ought to be organized, they often looked to Ireland, and they hated what they saw. So they would look to Ireland as an example of how things shouldn't be organized. They saw when they looked at Ireland, what they saw was a nation or a country of independent potato eaters who were able to opt out of the market, who weren't forced into the labor market because they could just about put body and soul together by a diet based almost entirely on potatoes that they grew themselves on their own land. And when the terrible Irish potato famine happened in the 1840s, they said, well, we always knew it. You know, potatoes were a terrible thing to be building your society on. You know, it's happened. But at least it'll get everybody off the potatoes. That was what they argued. So they said there's a good thing coming out of this famine. After this date, was it seen as being less beneficial to the diet of the working classes then? Yeah, well, I think I don't know if the famine was the causal element here, but you're absolutely right that over the 19th century, the nutritional merits of potatoes became were questioned ever more. So in the 18th century, the potato was you know hailed as this hearty population builder. By the 19th century, when the population stopped being the be all and end all of being a strong state, right? I mean, this was. He didn't just want, this was after Malthus had written about how the population was always going to outpace the food supply. And there was a move towards industrialization. You didn't want a huge peasantry. You wanted this finely tuned population of excellent industrial laborers who could work in the new factories and industries and who could make the country an economic success. Strength didn't come from just lots of people. It came from having a smoothly functioning economic system, right? That was the 19th century model. Peasants were a problem, right, in a sense. They were the people who needed to be dragged into modernity with the Irish. And nutritional science came to the view that actually potatoes, the very thing that would build up this hearty population of peasants, the worst thing you could be giving to industrial workers, that, you know, industrial workers needed nourishing foods that provided the right amounts of protein and albumin and fats. I mean, this was when food chemistry was being invented. And so people drew up charts to show how productive industrial workers were in different countries and correlated it with the amount of 
potatoes they ate. And the more potatoes they ate, the less productive they were. So the potato was began to be recast as this kind of you know, this peasant food that wasn't apt to create good industrial workers. I think nothing really focuses the attention more of the health of a nation than military conflict. During the Boer War, for example, the 60% of the recruits, I believe, were deemed to be unfit for service due to poor health. And in World War One, David Lloyd George estimated that the health issues were largely related to diet and prevented rec- recruitment of up to a million people. So what was it uh, about the potato that saw it being championed once again as a healthy food at the turn of the 20th century? But I mean, it should also be said that over the course of the 19th century, food chemistry and the science of nutrition was really developing. By the early 20th century, there was methods that could be used to evaluate a food nourishing potential using at least ostensibly objective measures like caloric content. And by the 1920s, we had things like vitamins. So it started to be then possible to break these foods down into their constituent parts and then work out whether you could get adequate nourishment by eating this or that, right? By looking at the caloric content, by looking at how much fat it offered. So all of this was developing over the course of the, the 19th century. Big wars that were breaking out in the late 19th, and then, of course, most fundamentally with the First World War, this put an, a renewed focus on having healthy, working people. So those large populations of hardy laborers started to look more attractive again. And things like, just as you said, the, the Boer War focused the attention of the state on public health in new ways. So this almost 18th century sense that having a sickly population we can do as a nation came strongly back into view again. There was this, exactly as you said, renewed attention on the need to have a healthy population, combined with you know developments in nutritional science, which started to make the potato look more appealing again. I was just going to say that by the First World War, every contending power had decided that potatoes were really, really important to the war effort. I think that you know Germany had an imperial potato office because it was seen as a way of feeding lots of people, particularly in an era when there, when there was concern about wheat shortages and you might want to be saving the wheat for the troops, but what was everybody else going to eat? A lot of potatoes. And nutritional science kind of caught up. And said, yeah, you know, and it's right. Potatoes are super nutritious. They're healthy and good for you. And this obviously continued into the Second World War, didn't it, in terms of food security, the encouragement of eating potatoes? That's exactly right. People who've been to the Imperial War Museum in London, for example, might have seen some of the healthy eating posters that were produced by the Ministry of Food in Britain, for example. Not surprisingly, my favourite campaign was the potato promotion campaign, which was centred around a cartoon potato called Potato Pete who proffered lots of recipes for how you could incorporate potatoes into absolutely every meal of the day from you know, breakfast to tea time and supper. He was quite cheeky, wasn't he? <laughs> There's a character. Some of the, some of the, uh, the, the advertisements are quite uh, tongue-in-cheek, shall we say. 
Yes, and they sort of feature this kind of ongoing love affair between him and a housewife, in which he sort of leers at the housewife and makes double entendres about how he's a bit of a devil or he probably should keep his jacket on for propriety's sake or that sort of thing. So I mean, the conversion of the potato into a kind of, as a seducer, I think is a, a really nifty trick. So bringing it more up to date now, with the popularity of low-carb diets and health, healthy eating concerns in first world countries, is the tide turning again against a potato? Is it still seen as working class poverty food today? It depends how things are prepared, right? In the West, we eat a shocking percentage of our potato harvests in the form of highly processed foods. The way in which potatoes are prepared, which I think is a a lot of hostility because of their being high fat, highly processed. But you're also right that every all truly has carbs of all sorts. So even the, in my mind, totally inoffensive boiled potato is coming through a bunch of critiques. People just you know, try to stay off them all together. And there's some scientific evidence that looks at how potatoes, regardless of how prepared, may lead to an insulin spike for various undesirable health outputs. But the, the science on this is, is diverse. It's a it's a mixed picture, I guess. Now we come to my favourite bit of the podcast when I find out just what delights my guest is contributing to the season's virtual and humble potluck supper. So can you describe your offering for today's episode and why you have chosen it? I am going to shamelessly offer a delicious and blameless plain boiled potato. It's actually my favourite way of eating potatoes. Over the course of doing this research, I learned how to boil potatoes properly. Oh, do, do they say now you have to enlighten me. So there, there's a right way to boil potatoes, is there? Yeah. So if you look at most recipes, they will say, fill a pan with boiling water and put in your potatoes. If you want them in pieces, you can cut them in chunks, um, put them in the boiling water, boil them and then drain them. And that is the wrong way to cook potatoes. So I learned this from 18th century sources where those patriotic scientists who were interested in finding the best ways of eating potatoes for the public good and for personal happiness. And they investigated all sorts of ways of cooking potatoes. And they investigated how to boil potatoes. And there was general agreement that what was called the Irish method, nothing to do with boiling water. You start your potatoes then whole and in a pan of cold water. And you bring them to the boil as slowly as you possibly can over a low, low heat. Um, the 18th century sources would sometimes say if it boils too vigorously and you can't let it to cool down, throw in some cold water to drop the temperature. So you want to cook them really slowly and really gently. And so by the time they've, they've gently come to their boil, they'll already have substantially cooked. And you just want to cook them just until they're tender when you drain them, and they will be delicious. They won't fall apart. They won't, you know, disintegrate. They won't be watery. The potato flavor will be intense and delicious. And if you're starting with some nice potatoes, they will be absolutely lovely. And they will go well with almost anything that you're serving at the dinner party. So I think they will be the perfect accompaniment to whatever else any other guest is bringing. And they're just so delicious and they do make you happy and there was an article i remember reading from the times from about 1854 
which concluded that a well-boiled potato was the key to domestic happiness. Who knew? I know now where I'm going wrong. Um, Rebecca, where can our listeners get hold of your books, particularly Feeding the People and the Potato? The, the Little Potato book, which is called Potato, is published by Bloomsbury. You can get it off their website and they will send it back to you. It's a short little book and it's got lots of pictures and it's has some poetry and it talks about how potatoes are like us. We're like potatoes and potatoes are like us. And feeding the people is the bigger, more um, sweeping history of potatoes from the Andes to absolutely everywhere. And that's published by Cambridge University Press. And what's next on the horizon for you? Well, so I'm writing a book about cookery books with a working title of something like, what can we learn from a cookbook other than how to cook? That sounds very interesting. It sounds like just the sort of book that I will be purchasing. Thank you to Professor Rebecca Earle for joining me today. You can find links to her books, Feeding the People and Potato, and her website in the show notes. And thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please let me know on Twitter at SJFBilton or Instagram at MrsBilton, that's with two S's. And if you love this episode, please rate and review it on Apple. It helps listeners discover and engage with the show as they explore new podcasts. If you'd like to discover more about my work, pop along to sambilton.com, where you'll find details on my books on gingerbread and saffron, as well as the Comfortably Hungry blog. You may also want to subscribe to the Comfortably Hungry newsletter on Substack, which complements this show. It includes recipes and more detailed notes from the season's episodes. You can also subscribe to the podcast on Spotify and Apple, among other platforms, so that you never miss a show. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another austerity podcast, but until then, take care. This podcast was created, researched, produced, recorded and edited by me, Sam Bilton, with music and sound effects provided by zapsplat.com.